This is Pastor James Guyo, and welcome to Berean Sovereign Grace Church in Westerville, Ohio. We are a Sovereign Grace teaching ministry, and you can visit our website, www.salvationinchristalone.com, to hear more of our messages, and also go to soundcloud.com and search for James Guyo. My last name is spelled G-U-Y-O, or you can search Berean Sovereign, just Berean Sovereign, and you will see our messages there also. May the Lord bless your hearing, and may he serve you for his sake, for Christ's sake, and for the sake of his gospel. And now to our gospel teaching. Okay, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you, we worship you this morning in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who accomplished our salvation. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us to him by his blood, by which we draw near in confidence, coming boldly to the throne of grace that we may find help in the time of need. And Lord, I pray that you cause your people to draw near with a clean conscience because they've been washed by the blood of Christ. Lord, I just pray again that you will teach your people this morning about Christ and what he has accomplished and to teach us that the gospel is not a new story. This has always been God's story from the beginning that has been played out in time. And so, Lord, I just thank you again for this time that you appointed for us to go into your word that we may hear more about Jesus. So more about Jesus cause us to learn, Lord, I pray. May you open the eyes of your people that they may see. I pray in his precious name. Amen. Anyway, let's open our Bibles and turn to Genesis 43. Genesis 43 verses 1 to 15. And Moses records for us and says, Now the famine was severe in the land. So it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, will go down and buy you food. But if you do not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Then Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, The man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me and will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, Then let me bear the blame before you forever. For if we had not delayed, surely 
By now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present. A little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man. And may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the man took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. The word of the Lord. Our sermon title, it's a long one. You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. All <laughs> the gospel according to Joseph. The gospel according to Joseph. And we'll begin in Romans 3, verse 21 and 22, where Apostle records for us and says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. The law and the prophets were witnesses of the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The law and the prophets is the whole Old Testament. The law and the prophets were witnesses of the righteousness of God in Christ. What that means is that the law and the prophets bore testimony of the person and work of Jesus. They were not the end of things. They were not the way by which righteousness could be attained. The righteousness of the gospel did not begin in the New Testament and certainly did not begin in the Old Testament. It rather is a story that was written from eternity. The story of the gospel is a story from eternity about this lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, but was given in time, in types and shadows, in the Old, in the Old Testament. But the substance of that story was later to be revealed in the New Testament by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So what I'm saying is that the gospel is not a new story that God gave 2,000 years ago or even in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was just the beginning of the unfolding of the drama of the gospel. Jesus Christ is God's story from eternity. The story that God in time has come and dramatized and then fulfilled in Christ. And it is a good drama, a narrative drama, which was played by many characters, which characters give us a different vantage point 
of this story of Jesus, the different characters that you find in the Bible are just giving you different vantage points from which to look at the person and work of Jesus, but they are all telling the same story. And, and why that many characters? Because there is no single character or person that was good enough or fit enough to represent all that Jesus is in his person. And so when we are preaching or teaching or reading to find Jesus and the gospel in the Old Testament, it is not that every single detail about the person or the event has to exactly match with the person and character of Jesus. To understand types and shadows, you have to understand the Jesus of the New Testament and the gospel as has been revealed to us in the New Testament. That is the key that opens up the Old Testament. Also, remember that all these characters, these types and shadows were not sinless people. <laughs> they were sinners. They were sinners. And because they were sinners, we can't say everything that they did necessarily represented Christ. What we have to do is we have to extract the good pictures of Christ from these characters. Okay? And see how God used these characters and discard their sin. We discard their sin. Because if we don't do that, we end up coming up with a lot of foolish theology, useless theology. Okay? And so God played out the teaching of the person and work of Christ in salvation by many characters and by many stories. Why? Because history is the story of Christ. The history of nations and peoples is the story of Christ. Creation is his story and there's nothing that is not Jesus' story. So the history of mankind is not being driven by innovation and our quest to become a better race of people. That's not what is driving history. We are not the ones who are in the driver's seat of history to make our economies better and just get the world to love one another better. No, that's not what is happening. History is God's story of Christ. So the history as has been recorded for us is about the preaching of Christ. And only God can preach Christ this way. And so the writer of Hebrews, speaking to the fulfillment of that drama, would come and write in Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2, and say, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So you see, Christ is the son of God and the final revelation of this story. He is the final fulfillment of this drama. So the, the fathers, the prophets, they spoke in many portions and in many ways to talk about this drama. So Christ is the full and final revelation 
of the story of redemption. And even after his own resurrection, he said in Luke chapter 24, Luke 24 verses 25 to 27, and he said to them, All foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. <laughs> what did this prophets talk about? <laughs> Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And when Jesus says, or when Luke says, beginning with Moses, that's beginning with Genesis. But it's Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. So beginning with Genesis, he taught them all things that were written about himself. Luke 24 verses 44 to 45. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So for these things to be seen, he has to open our minds to see them in the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets and the Psalms. They all bear testimony to him. John 5 verses 45 to 47. In John 5, 45 to 47, Jesus talking to the Jews says to them, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. <laughs> he wrote about Jesus. And if you backtrack, still in chapter 5, to John five thirty nine to 40, the same Jesus would say to the Jews, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So the purpose of the scriptures was to bear testimony to Christ that you may come to him that you may have life. The scriptures were not the end to themselves. The law was never the end to itself. The law was a servant of Christ to bear testimony of Christ and to lead God's people to Christ. So with that understanding, we have a very safe way of going into the Old Testament because Jesus has given us the license to go into the Old and to look for him. <laughs> but he says he's in there. If you are reading the Old right, he says you have to hear about me because the scriptures that Jesus was talking about were the Old Testament scriptures. And so we have the history of Israel. We have the history of Israel. And I've read that story. I've read the Old Testament many times. And until I started to look at the stories in the light of the gospel, they just remained Bible stories. And I was looking in particular at the story of Joseph. And I thought that was a very interesting story. God talked about Joseph for quite a lengthy period of time about his life. 
from being born all the way to leaving Egypt. So that has to be important. I mean, there were a lot of other people that God could have told us about, but for some reason, he determined to act out the drama of Christ in the life of Joseph. But not Joseph alone, but just about everybody else who is recorded in the story. Okay, Everybody else plays a particular function in the building up of the story. So to have a recap of the history of Israel is better to just go to Acts chapter 7 and hear what Stephen says from there because he gives us a very good summary of how Israel came to be Israel and what happened to them. Acts chapter 7, and this is Stephen before the council, and he is answering to the charges of blaspheming Moses and the law. Why? Because he was preaching the gospel. He was preaching Christ. So when you preach Christ right, those who love the law, guess what? They're going to say some mean things about you. And if they had their way, guess what? They would want to stone you too. But this is what Stephen says, X 7 verses 1 to 13. The high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, that's Stephen, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him move to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God, and after that they will come out and save me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs, the patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it. And our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And so that is, in a nutshell, the history of Israel. But the history of Israel is a redemptive history. It's unlike the history of any other nation. The history of Israel is a redemptive history. It is a history about Jesus. It is a history about Jesus and his work of salvation. God was using these people that he chose to himself 
to play out salvation, to play out the salvation story, or to play out salvation history. It was the rehearsal play of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we enter into Egypt with God having promised Abraham that his descendants would be slaves in that nation for 430 years. And so the story of Joseph being sold to Potiphar by the Ishmaelites, the Midianites, was not something that the brothers came up with. That's not something that the brothers imagined. They just played into God's sovereign hand. That was God's sovereign purpose and the means by which he was going to fulfill this promise in the larger context of preaching the gospel. Joseph, we are told, descended from Isaac. Okay, Joseph was Isaac's, Isaac's grandson. Joseph's father was Jacob, also called Israel. Remember, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. So, Joseph is in the line of blessing. He is in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not in the line of Ishmael. And if you still remember the story of Ishmael and Isaac, the blessings of God went through Isaac and not Ishmael. And there was enmity between Isaac and Ishmael. Do you hear me? There was enmity. Why? Because the scriptures say the son of the born woman could not be heir with the son of the free. Could not be heir with the child of promise. And this enmity between Ishmael and Isaac plays out also in the way that Joseph was sent to Egypt. It's the Ishmaelites who are descendants of Ishmael who took Joseph to Egypt. The Midianites are descendants of Ishmael. God was just lucky that the Ishmaelites just showed up right in time that Joseph was in the dungeon and the brothers were plotting to kill him. And they just so happened to show up right on time and headed exactly where God wanted them to go to Egypt. That's sovereignty. The Ishmaelites had to show up because God moved them and he set their itinerary to be on that day and on that time. That's sovereignty. But the Ishmaelites were clueless about what was happening. Okay? And yet they are part of the story of Christ. They are part of the story of Christ. But we also know this, that Jacob had 12 sons by multiple wives. And that is another drama <laughs> that will save for another day. But he had 12 sons. With multiple wives, basically he had the two wives, and then the wives had their maid servants, and the maid servants had children for <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you know the story, the competition and everything that went with that. But in Genesis thirty seven, verse three, this is what we are told. The Bible says, Now Israel, that is Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors, a very colored tunic. So Jacob, Israel, he loved Joseph more than all his sons. 
Let me, let me just drop you some nugget when you're reading the Old Testament. When Jacob is called Jacob, it's always mostly in the negative. He is called Israel when God is saying good things about him. Jacob is always the sinner, the hill catcher. Israel is the one who has the blessing. He's the one that God is kind to. Okay. So we are told that Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. And because of that, he made him a coat or tunic of many colors. And of course, this did not amuse the brothers. They hated him because of that. And even more, when he told them about his dream, about the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars that were bowing down to him to worship him in his dream. And this was understood as saying the whole family was going to worship Joseph. And the brothers were not very amused by that. They became even more jealous and so they plotted to get rid of him. They plotted to actually kill him. But by God's providence, the Ishmaelites, as we already mentioned, just so happened to be passing by and they ended up giving him to the Ishmaelites and the Ishmaelites took him not to Ethiopia. The Ishmaelites were not going to Ethiopia. They were going to Egypt. So they take him to Egypt and the text says in Genesis 37, 36, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So Joseph is not sold to just some other guy in Egypt. He is sold to someone who is a high-ranking officer in Egypt, the captain of the bodyguard of Pharaoh. But while Joseph was working for Potiphar, we are told that the Lord was with him and he prospered everything that Joseph touched. Everything that Joseph touched, the Lord caused it to prosper. And because of that, he was made overseer of all that belonged to Potiphar. Everything. Let's listen to Genesis 39 verse 5. Genesis 39 5. He says, It came about that from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. But there was a huge problem, a very big problem. Joseph was a handsome man. He was handsome in form and appearance, the text says. And Potiphar's wife had weakness because of this. She could not subdue her sinful flesh and so she wanted to commit adultery with Joseph. Her depravity found opportunity to express itself and she caused Joseph much unnecessary affliction. Her attempt to sin with Joseph failed. And she had to make a false accusation and an evil report of Joseph to the servants and to her husband. And because of this, Joseph had no option but to leave his garments in her hands that he may flee from her. 
And that too was not by accident. The Holy Spirit would not take that much effort to record this. Of all the things that Joseph did, he obviously did a lot of things for Potiphar. But the Holy Spirit was pleased to drop that nugget for us. So that nugget is a very important gospel nugget. But she made a report to her husband, who obviously was not happy. He was not amused by the incident. And so he threw Joseph into the dungeon. That is jail. He put him in the dungeon. And while Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him again. And by God's sovereignty, the cupbearer and baker of the king of Egypt, that is Pharaoh, got in trouble. And the king threw them both into jail where Joseph happened to be. So you see who brings trouble. <laughs> it's God who brings trouble. I wish the church would understand that. It's God who brought trouble to the cupbearer and the baker that they may go into the dungeon and meet with Joseph. Because God is so serious about preaching his son that he is willing to get someone into jail. That's how serious he is. How so lucky of them to go into the same place where Joseph was. So God has caused both the cupbearer and the baker to have dreams that they could not interpret. And no one could interpret except Joseph. That's sovereignty again. Only Joseph could do this. The cupbearer in the interpretation of the dream, the cupbearer was to be restored to his former position. And so he was set free from prison whilst the baker was to be hanged and Pharaoh hanged him. But the cupbearer, on getting out of jail, he used his freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He forgot to help Joseph as Joseph had requested of him. Because Joseph had asked him to make mention of Joseph's name before Pharaoh. And it was almost after two years that the cupbearer remembered that he was supposed to have said something to Pharaoh about Joseph. But that did not stop God from doing what God does. Okay, So God in his sovereignty again caused Pharaoh to have a dream that neither he nor his magicians could interpret. And God caused the cupbearer to remember Joseph before Pharaoh on account of that dream. Listen to Genesis 41 verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself. And changed his clothes. He came to Pharaoh. Why? Why does the Holy Spirit tell us that he had to shave and change clothes? Coming out of the dungeon. It's another gospel nugget. So hold on to that. We're going to work it. And tie all these pieces together. Genesis 41, 38 to 45. This is what the word of the Lord says. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Joseph had told Pharaoh what the dream meant. He had interpreted the dream for him. So this is Pharaoh's reaction to what Joseph has just told him. He says, verse 38, Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, 
And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in the garments of fine linen and put the golden necklace around his neck. He had him ride in his second chariot and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphenath Paneah, and he gave him Esnath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over the land of Egypt. So after his betrayal and jail time on account of Potiphar's wife, after his humiliation, that's humiliation, Joseph is elevated to, is elevated in power and glory and is given a bride, a gentle bride to be his wife. He's given a gentle bride to be his wife. Now after these things, there was a great and severe famine across the whole earth. And it happened that only Egypt had food. Only Egypt had food. And so everybody had to come to Egypt to get food, if they had to live. But see who caused the famine. But a lot of people think that when there's hunger and famine, it's just because of the El Nino. And God has nothing to do with it. But it is God who brought famine across the whole world. It is he who did it. To do what? That he may preach the gospel. And is that the God that people actually believe in? The God who is willing to bring so much suffering to the whole world that he may preach his son. To have the firstborns of all of Egypt to die just that he may preach his son. Is that the God that people actually believe in? Or they just want to believe in this God of love who doesn't do anything that is contrary to human opinion. But we believe and teach the God of the Bible. Listen to Genesis 42, verse 1 to 2. You see, we are moving up. We started from 37. In Genesis 42, 1 and 2, it says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt, go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. And so the brothers went down to Egypt to buy some food. But when they got to Egypt, things did not turn out very well. They meet with Joseph, but they do not know him. They do not recognize him, but Joseph recognizes them. And he accuses the boys of spying out the land of Egypt. And that's almost espionage. And so he threatens them. And so he incarcerates them. <laughs> Genesis 42, verses 14 to 17. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, so that's an oath. He is swearing by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place 
unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. So this is what Joseph has done when you are reading stories like this. Pay attention to the detail. Joseph has tied their life and their freedom to their brother. He has tied their life and their freedom to them, bringing with them their brother. Their brother becomes their get-out-of-jail card. He becomes their ransom payment. He becomes their surety. He becomes their life. He becomes their salvation from prison. They are now captives. And if they have to be free again, it's only if the brother shows up. That's the one condition. It's not five conditions, it's just one condition. But after three days, Joseph got them released on the condition that Simeon, one of the brothers, remained behind in custody until Benjamin comes. So Simeon again is sacrificed for the sake of his brothers. Another type of Christ. Another type of Christ. But in this drama, the life of Simeon also hinges on Benjamin. If Simeon has to come out of jail, Benjamin also has to show up. So Benjamin is another type of Christ. And surely, as soon as Benjamin shows up, guess what? Simeon is released. So the boys get back home with an evil report. <laughs> They're like, okay, who's going to tell dad? Uh, Reuben, uh, no, Judah, uh, Gad, uh, who's going to tell dad that Simeon is in Egypt? <laughs> and not only is he in Egypt, he is in jail. And we have not enough bond money. <laughs> and the bell has been set on your other son, Benjamin. <laughs> the very one that you love. So the boys get back home and they retell the story and the predicament that they are in because of Simeon and because of Joseph. And Jacob is literally beside himself. Jacob has lost it. And he is adamant that Benjamin could not be allowed to go with the brothers so as to redeem Simeon. Because Jacob is thinking, well, he already has Simeon. If I send Benjamin, he may not come back. Oh, by the way, I already lost one of my favorite ones, the one that I loved the most, Joseph. So before I know it, I'm going to be down three sons. <laughs> so he's doing his math. <laughs> he is doing his math. And that will take us to Genesis 43. And that's our text. That's our text. And the text says in Genesis 43, verse 1 and 2, Now the famine was severe in the land, so it came about when they had finished eating the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. So there was a severe famine in the land, and they had run out of supplies. Verse 3, Judah spoke to him, however, saying, The man solemnly warned us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And so Judah reminded Jacob 
that they could not just go back to Egypt without Benjamin because the man who was in charge of Egypt and also in charge of all the food supplies had told them in no uncertain terms that they would not see his face unless they had their other brother with them, this Benjamin brother with them. And that means no Benjamin, no food for them. No Benjamin, that's death. Benjamin had to come or else they were not getting their food and they were never ever going to see Simeon again. So the the family is in turmoil. The family is in turmoil. But you see, they are reading on page 30 of a book that is a million pages. Jacob thinks his life sucks. Simeon thinks his life sucks. The brothers think their life is in jeopardy. Why? Because they are reading everything according to their circumstances. They do not have the full script of what God is doing. And we also, in life, we do the very same thing. We have one day, and we are reading on page 30 of a book that has 10,000 pages. And we read the whole book from page 30. So we go through situations, and we think, oh, God has forgotten about me. Look at what is happening. But no, that's not true. It's because you don't have the full script of what God is working. God is working all things to the good, for good. To all those who love him. Who are called according to his purpose. So they love him because they are called according to his purpose. And the purpose is to glorify his son. So he's not going to fail. So don't read page 30 of your life. And try to make much of it. Verse 4. This is what Judah says. Of Genesis 43. If you send our brother. If you send our brother with us. We will go down and buy you food. So Judah says. As long as. We go back to Egypt in the company of Benjamin. We'll be okay. We'll be able to get the food and we will not risk being thrown in jail again. Okay. We will not risk ourselves being thrown in jail again. Verse five. But if you do not send him, we will not go down for the men say to us, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. The brother has to come or nothing. Not his father, but the brother. Not his mother, not his aunts, not his friends, not their neighbors, but the brother. That's very specific. You bring your brother or else you're not going to see my face, which means no food for you. Verse 6 and 7. Then Israel said, why did you treat me so badly by telling the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man questioned particularly about us and our relatives, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? So we answered his questions. Could we possibly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? So the man in Egypt apparently was very intrusive in his questioning. He took particular interest not in the ants, not in the neighborhood, not in the animals. He took particular interest in this other brother and said, have you another brother? I need to know that. I need to know that. Have you another brother? Another brother for what man of Pharaoh? I just want to know. (laughs) Have you another brother? That's all. 
<laughs> I just seem so interested to know if we have another brother. The guys have already come and there were nine of them. Were they nine? I think so. They have come. I'm like, okay, we are already nine brothers here. What's wrong with you? Why would you want to know more about some other brother? Come on, man. <laughs> Verse 8. Judah said to his father Israel, Send the lad with me and will arise and go, that we may live and not die, we as well as you and our little ones. So to say, you send the lad, the boy, with me, that we may live and not die. If we have to see life, this boy has to go with Judah. This other brother now holds the life of all in his hands. He has to go or all will perish. Benjamin has to go to Egypt. Benjamin has to go to Egypt. Verse 9. So Judah has to put something on the table for negotiation. Verse 9, he says, I myself will be surety for him. You may hold me responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. So this is where the plot begins to really thicken the gospel plot. Benjamin has to go to Egypt as the ransom payment to redeem the whole family. But God is not yet done preaching. Because Jacob is reluctant to send him away, Judah steps up. He steps up and says, I am going to be his surety. So Benjamin is surety for the family. But Judah says, well, since dad doesn't want Benjamin to go, I am going to be the surety of the surety. I am going to put my life on the line for the sake of Benjamin. So Judah becomes the surety of Benjamin. And says, I'll bear all the blame. I'll bear the legal responsibility, the guilt and the shame for this boy if I don't bring him back. If I don't bring him back to you. And so if Judah brings back Benjamin, guess what? It means everybody comes back. Because Benjamin would have gone to Egypt. <laughs> so Judah makes an oath and says, If I do not bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame before you forever. So Judah is not just taking the blame. He says he will take this blame on himself forever. Judah is saying, let me be condemned forever if I fail to bring Benjamin back. You hear me? But why Judah? Why not Reuben? Why not God? Why did Judah stand up to be the surety of Benjamin? Genesis 49, verses 9 to 12. Genesis 49, 9 to 12, and that's Jacob is already now in Egypt, and he is pronouncing blessings on all his sons. And this is what he had to say about Judah. He says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, he have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Do you see that that Shiloh is capitalized? 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine. Do you see that the he is now capitalized? And his robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. Judah is a type of Christ. Judah is a type of Christ. Jesus Christ is from the tribe of Judah. He is the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah. And he takes surety, the legal responsibility to bring back the life of Benjamin and all those that are in him. Now the whole family is in Benjamin, but the whole family is also now in Judah. It's now in Judah. The whole family is in Christ. Do you see that? We're going to wake it. It's going to come out. We are getting very close. The other brothers did not take that oath. They did not take that oath. They did not take that obligation. Judah alone did. That was an oath. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he alone took the oath to bring us back to the Father. He alone took the burden, the legal responsibility and the liability of bringing us back to the Father or else, he says, I'll bear the reproach of it forever. I'll bear the reproach of not bringing those whom you have given me forever. Jesus is the surety of the covenant. He is the covenant of God's people. God gave him as the covenant. Jesus is the covenant itself. Jesus himself is the covenant for the salvation of his people. And that means it is by his life alone and by his death alone that he would bring us back to God or face condemnation forever. If Jesus had failed to bring us back to God, then he would have been condemned forever. But we know that he was able to fulfill the terms of that covenant of salvation because after his resurrection, he said, I'm going to the Father. And Jesus could not go back to the Father with empty hands because in one of the feasts, he said, no man shall come to me with empty hands. Jesus could not go back to God with empty hands. He had to show him something. He had to bring something. He had to bring the children that God gave to him. We have to learn to understand the gospel as God has taught it. The elect of Christ are not the ones who bear the responsibility of bringing themselves to God. The responsibility is in the surety, the one who entered into their place and said, I am taking the responsibility of bringing them to you. And now when you look at the gospel, we have to look at the one who took that responsibility, the surety, and see if they did it or not, if they paid it or not. And if they did, we are done. We're done talking. Or else it's just human stuff, just human flesh. So Jesus is the covenant. The covenant of grace is not just a list of terms. Jesus himself is the covenant. It is by him and through him that we come to the Father. He is the covenant. If you remove Jesus, you can fulfill all those terms, but you are still lacking something. You are still lacking Jesus. You need Jesus. Isaiah 49 verses 5 to 11. Isaiah says, verse 5 to 11, And now says the Lord, 
who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Who formed me from the womb to be his servant. To bring Jacob back to him. Do you see that responsibility? That language of bringing back Jacob. Now, is Jacob, is Jacob the sinner being brought back to God so that Israel, the saved one, might be gathered to him? <laughs> For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So you can hear, it's Christ who is being talked about. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings who see and arise, princes who also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a favorable time, I have answered you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you, and I'll keep you and give you for a covenant of the people. To do what? To restore the land and to make them inherit the desolate heritages. Saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed and their pasture will be on all the bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst. Nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. That's preservation of the saints. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a rod and my highways will be raised up. So this is Jesus who is being spoken of. He came in the flesh that he may be the servant of Jehovah to gather together God's people to himself by his death. He was given as the covenant for the people that is the elect of God, which means the terms of our salvation were given to Christ as our representative, as our substitute, as our surety, as our mediator. And if he would fail, he would bear the blame forever. The work of salvation was a contract. God and Christ, they agreed they said the terms, it was written, it was signed, and Jesus came and he signed the completion of that work on the cross by his own blood. By his own blood. So as I said again, the terms of salvation were never given us to accomplish by ourselves. Because we can't. And that was never God's plan anyway in the first place. This is God's work from eternity. God is not working salvation today. He worked it from eternity. It's his purpose in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And so he says to his people in Isaiah 49 verse 11, God says, I will make all my mountains a rod and my highways will be raised up. Do you see the background? God is saying the mountains are the impassable places. These are the places that you can't just go over by yourself. His mountains, you are not able by yourself 
to go over God's mountains. And that is Mount Sinai. That is the impassable mountain. That's the law that you can't climb up by yourself because it is high and it thunders there. But God has made it a rod that we can walk on it. He has made it a rod. His highways have been raised up to make it all smooth. He has made it all tarred or he has put concrete. He has made a straight highway in Jesus. So the road to salvation has been made straight and accessible to us who could not walk on God's highways and mountains. Do we understand the language? So we'll go back to Genesis 43 and finish off this story. Genesis 43.10 For if we had not delayed, by now we could have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the men as a present. A little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Stan, do you have some pistachio nuts? Sounds like something that you like to eat. Okay, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> take double the money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sex. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and arise, return to the man, and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the man took this present and they took double the money in their hand and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And so the brothers, they took Benjamin with them to Egypt, and they met with Joseph. <laughs> and we have said so many things already, but we haven't spoken much about the gospel yet. So if you know me, it's time to go into the details and get the gospel. The title of our sermon is, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. We have to know who we are and where we are as a people, as God sees us. What we see ourselves does not matter in the eyes of God. What matters is what he says. The gospel is good news only when you hear it as good news. And the gospel is only going to be good news when you hear it as a sinner. That is one without righteousness and one who is not able to produce righteousness by themselves. We are sinners, my brothers and sisters, and that is the only way that we can understand what God is saying in Christ. We can't understand Jesus if we don't agree with God's testimony of us. People don't die because they get old. They die because of sin. They die because of sin. The children of Israel did not go to Egypt on vacation. It was not a vacation trip. They went to Egypt because there was a severe famine in the land and across the whole surface of the earth. And only Egypt had provisions of food. The whole world was under a severe famine and that was teaching of the lack of righteousness of all men because of the fall. And it's speaking to the condemnation that has befallen men all men because of the sin in Adam. 
So the whole world was in severe famine. And because of this, there was no other place for men to go find life, to find food, than to go to Egypt. If you wanted to leave, you had to go to Egypt to get some food or else you died. And so you and I, as long as we think we still have some leftover food, some leftover righteousness in our own pantry of self-righteousness, then we are not going to go to the place that only has food. The only place. There is nothing left for you and I to eat. And we will die in our sins if we don't go to the place of provision. There is even now a severe famine over the surface of the earth. And people are dying and are going to die because they do not avail themselves to the place of provision. And people are going to die because they are sinners, as I said. And the severe famine, as I said, is severe because it's beyond the power and ability of man to solve. And it brings death unless an immediate solution is found for it. So, This famine was across the whole world because all the children of men were affected by the sin of Adam and its judgment. So all men were born in sin and under condemnation, they were already condemned. A lot of people think there's still some island, some ounces of righteousness and goodness, some island of free will. No, nothing. The testimony of scripture is all the people in the world are under severe famine. They lack righteousness. They lack righteousness. But see, again, who brought hunger on the world and who brought the solution? It is God who decreed hunger in the world. And it is God who decreed sin to be in the world. And it is God who provided the solution for Joseph to be exalted in Egypt. And that Christ may be exalted in salvation. God decreed hunger that Joseph may be exalted is God who decrees sin that Christ may be exalted. That's a theology that men don't like to hear, but it's unavoidable. The solution to the hunger problem was not Pharaoh's idea. Pharaoh was at the end of himself. It was not a man's idea. It was God's idea to save many people alive, according to Joseph. So salvation did not come to Egypt because of Pharaoh, but because of this one whom God sent. Joseph was not from Egypt. He pre-existed his coming to Egypt. Do you hear me? And so Jesus Christ pre-existed his coming to earth, to this place of severe famine because of sin. God sent his son to the world, not to condemn it, because it was already condemned, but to save it as he sent Joseph to save the world from hunger. The famine in Egypt and the world was a type of the condemnation that was already on the world. And God was playing out the drama of Christ. And so salvation and the cross of Christ was not an idea of man, not of Herod, 
not of Pilate or the chief priests or the Jews. That was God's idea. But the solution of sin is not in us bringing our own money, bringing our own works to try and buy food when we are at the point of death. When you go and read the full narrative of the story of Joseph, Joseph never took money from his brothers. They came with the money, but he never took the money. They did not pay for their food. He returned it back in their sacks and gave them the food that they needed for free. We can't buy salvation. We can't end salvation. And it is like Jesus asking for water to drink from the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. But he never drank it. He asked for water. He did not drink it. He asked his disciples to go find food and he never ate the food. He said, I have some other food to eat. Why? Because Jesus is the one who had come to give the water and the food, the bread from heaven and the living water. So he could not be the one receiving water from this woman who needed Jesus' water. And he could not be the one eating the food that these guys had gone and bought. So that is all to say salvation cannot be end. And we do not bring anything before God as to be accepted by him. Not anything that we bring ourselves. It has to be all given freely by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. So in Romans 4, verse 4 and 5, Apostle Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. The brothers of Joseph were ungodly. <laughs> and yet Joseph gave them food freely, freely. Just as we are the ungodly. We were enemies of God. And yet Christ has given us, he has credited us with his own righteousness for free, freely. But listen to the rod of Joseph to the throne, to being the prime minister of Egypt. Joseph was falsely accused of adultery by Potiphar's wife. And as I said, Joseph is a type of Christ. And he is the foremost type of Christ in the Old Testament who had nothing bad said of him and had no sin of his recorded in the Bible. There's no sin incident of Joseph himself ever recorded for us in the Bible. This was not to say Joseph was sinless. It was God's purpose to preach Christ. It was God's purpose to preach Christ. So like Christ, no deceit was found in his mouth. He was a righteous man who suffered humiliation because of the sin of another. The sin that he did not commit. The sin of Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife had no witnesses to her accusation against Joseph. She had no witnesses. And that is to say she had no righteousness of her own. She was a sinner. No one could testify of her own righteousness as she told the story. But she became righteous in the process. She became righteous in the process. And her only witness to her own righteousness was not the servants. It was Joseph's garment that was in her possession. Or else she was tossed. 
He only witness of her own righteousness became not the witnesses that were at Potiphar's house, but the garment of Joseph that she had in her possession. That became her only testimony and righteousness. Joseph's garment became her imputed righteousness. Okay? That's imputed righteousness. She was not righteous in herself. Though she was a liar and an adulterer because she thought to do it, she was vindicated to be righteous because of the garments of the righteous one who had been condemned into the dungeon in her place. She is the one who was supposed to go in the dungeon. She does not go in the dungeon. Joseph is the one who gets humiliated and goes into the dungeon in her place. Do you see that? So who is Potiphar's wife? Because a lot of times, a lot of people have read that. They're like, okay, Potiphar's wife, what a wicked woman she was. <laughs> and a lot of people identify themselves with Joseph. But this is a problem. We are Potiphar's wife. We are the sinners. We are the ones whose only testimony is the garments of Christ that we have in our possession. Our only testimony of righteousness is what Christ, the one who went into the dungeon because of our sin, has left in our hands. And beyond that, we have no other righteousness besides his. We have no other testimony of righteousness beyond his. So Potiphar's wife's sin was imputed onto Joseph. But see, Joseph did not participate in this deed. So the only way that he could be guilty was if the sin of Potiphar's wife had been imputed on him and that's what put him in the dungeon. And if her sin was not imputed on Joseph, guess what? She was going most likely to be killed by her husband. Okay? But when his sins were imputed on Joseph, guess what had to happen to Joseph? Joseph had to be jailed. He had to suffer humiliation. And so when God imputed our sins on Christ, Christ had to suffer the humiliation of the cross that we may live and possess his righteousness. He entered the humiliation of the cross and the grave that we may have his righteous garments. Is our only testimony of righteousness. Potiphar's wife did not have any witnesses to testify against her. She only had witnesses to testify for her righteousness. You have to hear that. <laughs> Potiphar's wife did not have any witnesses against her. There was no one to testify against her lack of righteousness. Everything that she had was a witness to her righteousness, even though she was a sinner. So you and I, you have no witnesses to testify against your lack of righteousness. The only witnesses that they are only testify of your righteousness, and that is God. God is your only witness who testifies of your righteousness. And we can say to Potiphar's wife, who shall bring a charge against her? She has the garments. Who is going to change the story? She has the garments of Joseph. And everybody knows the garment of Joseph. So 
In Romans 8, Apostle Paul says, Romans 33, sorry. Oh, those are uh, lost books of Romans, Romans 30, chapter 33. <laughs> uh, I just found them today. <laughs> Romans 8, 33 to 39. It says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Who shall bring a charge against Potiphar's wife? Who? She has the righteousness. Who is going to condemn me? Nobody. It is Christ who died. It is Joseph who went into the dungeon. And furthermore, is also reason who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. All that is fulfilled in Joseph. We're going to see it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Apostle Paul says by the Holy Spirit, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall bring a charge? And that's a rhetorical question. It's not even looking for an answer. It's saying there's no one who can testify against your own lack of righteousness. But because of Christ, because of the righteousness of Christ, God sees you as righteous. And it's only the opinion of God that matters, not your opinion, not the opinion of all these things, not the opinion of death, not the opinion of angels, not the opinion of things present or to come. None of that matters as long as you possess the righteousness of Christ. So Joseph was both a type of Christ and also a type of God in this narrative story. When he was in jail, he was a type of Christ. He was in the dungeon, a type of being buried in the grave because of a false accusation. But in the process of his death, he gave life to the cupbearer and death to the baker. He was in his dungeon mediating life and death as Christ was mediating life and death on the cross. Between the two thieves, saving one and death to the other. Do you see that? And it's Joseph who is in the middle of life and condemnation. And it's Christ who is in the middle of life and condemnation on the cross. See that when Joseph left the dungeon, the place of his burial, he shaved and changed his clothes. As Christ also left his burial clothes at the tomb, at the place of his burial. The coming out of Joseph from prison was a type of the resurrection of Christ. Type of resurrection of Christ. Joseph was, as it were, coming out of the grave in the aftermath of him having set free the cupbearer and judged the baker and also setting free Potiphar's wife. So Jesus, after his resurrection, changed his garments as a testimony of his own righteousness. 
that even though he went in accused, he was righteous even then. And the changing of clothes is testimony of his righteousness that he had. And so Joseph also, in changing clothes, he is saying he was righteous before and was righteous after. So he left the guilty that had been imputed on him behind and was now clothed in his own righteousness. Okay, so see this. After Joseph was set free from the dungeon, he was given all power and authority and was only second to Pharaoh. And we are told that every knee in Egypt bowed down before him. Every knee. And it is the same with the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 3 to 11. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 to 11. I'm almost done. I didn't, I didn't think it would be this far this time. I thought we were going to have another 45 minutes. <laughs> Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, verses 3 to 11, says to us, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. That's the process of humiliation. How did Christ empty himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So do you see the pattern of the humiliation of Christ? Is the emptying of Christ it's not that Christ was setting aside his deity. A lot of people interpret it that way. That's wrong. Deity is immutable. It can't be emptied. It can only be veiled. He veiled it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he showed it. So the humiliation of Christ and the emptying of Christ is addition. You are adding a law nature to one who is deity. So it's subtraction by addition. It's subtraction by addition. And so the apostle says, this is how Christ, who is God, subtracted himself. How he emptied himself. He took the form of a bond servant. And he was made in the likeness of man. And men are below the nature of God and below the nature of angels. And Christ took that form. You understand that? And not only that, he just did not become a man. He also humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So suffering the death on the cross, the shameful death on the cross, is what the emptying is about. It's not about emptying of his deed. Okay. For this reason, listen to this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Remember before Joseph went into the dungeon, he was already high in Potiphar's house. So he had glory and he was humiliated into the dungeon. And after the dungeon, 
he was raised to sit on the right hand of power. And Christ follows the same pattern. So this is what has happened in the light of that. God has given him, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see the same being given as a commandment to all of Egypt because of Joseph. In the light of Joseph's resurrection to the right hand of power. So Joseph, after he had been set at the right hand of Pharaoh, after he got out of jail, he got married to a Gentile bride. And so that was our Lord Jesus Christ being married to his Gentile bride after his own humiliation. Hear that? But in saying, as we close, but in saying to the ten brothers, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you, Joseph was speaking as God, not as Christ. He was speaking as God. And it is God saying to you and I, I do not care what you have to bring before me for your salvation. I do not care for your aunt, for your neighbors, for your parents, for your baptism, you name it. If you are the one who is bringing it, I don't care for it. Unless I see your brother, unless I see your brother, this Benjamin that I love. So Benjamin is a type of Christ. He is loved of Joseph. And Joseph loves Benjamin more than any of his brothers as God loves Christ Jesus more than anybody. He said, unless you guys come with Benjamin, you shall surely perish. Unless we come with the righteousness of Christ alone, we shall surely perish. God will not look to anything that we bring. God will not look to anything that you and I are going to produce. So we might as well just forget trying to work out our own righteousness. He will not accept our money. He will not accept our works in exchange for salvation. He will not accept any pleas from anyone, not from the dead saints, not from Mary, and not from the Pope. He has only one question for you. Have you not another brother? Have you not another brother? Have you not another mediator that I can talk to? Have you not another brother that I love, that I can speak to, that I can relate to? He says all he needs for your salvation is to see you in the company of our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament says Jesus Christ is our elder brother. So God only cares to see us in the company of our brother Jesus Christ or else we will not see his face. And that means we shall not be saved. That's all that he's saying. He's saying you won't be saved if I don't see you in the company of Jesus. And see that the coming of Benjamin was enough for the salvation of his brothers. And so the blood of Christ is enough for your justification. You don't need to add to that. If Benjamin was enough for his family 
to get free food in Egypt and live, then Christ is enough for your salvation. He is enough for the salvation of all his elect to live and not see death. And if Joseph's garments were enough for Potiphar's wife to prove a case of innocence and righteousness, the, the garments of Joseph were enough for Potiphar's wife, then the garments of Christ are enough to prove our own righteousness before God. That's all we ever need. God said of the blood of the Passover, lamb in Exodus 12, 13, he said, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, and no plague will before you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God says, when I see the blood, he's only looking for the one thing. He's looking for the blood. He's not looking at the strength of your faith. He's not looking at the strength of your good works. He is not looking at your faithfulness. He is looking at whether you brought the brother or you have the blood. And he sees the blood in the thickness of the darkness. He sees it. So the issue of salvation is we may have a lot of blood, we may have a lot of garments, but are we holding to the garments that acquits us? Are we holding to the garments of this other brother that God loves? Do we have the blood that God can see? Because he doesn't see all kinds of blood. There's only one blood that he sees in a particular way that when he looks, he says, I'll pass over him. I, I have no option. I have to pass over him. Look at him. Look at the blood that he has. So to see the blood is to come with your brother. And to come with your brother is to stand on the righteousness of Christ alone. For it is the blood that makes atonement. So I would ask everyone here and anybody who shall listen this question and say, yes, we have been in the church many years. And we may have been ministering to the Lord like Samuel was. Remember, Samuel was ministering to the Lord for many years in the temple with Eli. But the text said in First Samuel that the Lord had never spoken to him. Never. Never spoken to him. And there are many people who are in the church, who are ministering, and they think they are ministering to Christ, and they think they believe the gospel, and yet God has not yet to talk to them. God hasn't spoken to them. The question that we've answered is, we are in this world that is under famine. We are in this wilderness of sin. What is the hope for this severe famine? What is the hope that we have for this lack of righteousness. Because you see, the majority of the gospel teaching is focusing on your repentance and on your faith. It's not focusing on the sufficiency of Christ's work and blood. So it leaves you helpless. It leaves you continuing to look at yourself, looking to yourself, introspecting, Trying to see the blood that you can't see. You can't see the blood of Christ. It's God who sees it. God says, when I see the blood, not when you see the blood. He says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. So how do we know we have the blood of Christ? How do we know we have the right brother with us? We believe the gospel. That's the only way to know. That's the only positive way to know that you have the right brother to bring 
with you to God and you have the blood that God sees. Okay. So the question again is, what are we going to bring before God that we may find life? And who are we bringing? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Thank God for Jesus Christ. We can't bring our works. We can't bring, it doesn't matter how good they are, we can't bring our works because that's not the gospel. We can't bring faith and repentance and say, oh, look at me, I repented from this and that. Oh, look at me, I believe this and that. If we truly believe and if we have truly repented, we only bring Christ with us and nothing else. True faith and repentance bring only the righteousness of Christ. Okay. And see also, at the end, Joseph clothed all his brothers with new garments. That will take me two and a half minutes and we are done. Genesis 45, 21 and 22. At the end, Joseph, Genesis 45, 21 and 22. He clothed all his brothers with new garments. <laughs> then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them, he gave changes of garments to each of them. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Remember, Benjamin is a type of Christ. So he is getting more because that's a picture of the exaltation of Christ. But Joseph gives them a change of garments. That's a change of righteousness because when they came, these were sinners. These are the ones who desired to put him to death. And yet he is the one who acquits them as righteous. <laughs> and then he tells them that it's not you who sent me here. It's not you. This is not about you guys. It's about God. It's about God and salvation to save many people alive. And the purpose of the death of Christ, the purpose of sin, is not about sin itself. People get hung up over sin to the point that they stop thinking about the glory of Christ in salvation. Sin was just preparing the ground, the stage for Christ to be displayed and his righteousness, for Christ to be exalted. So this change of clothes was their justification it was their righteousness. And it is Joseph who did it all. And so as we commemorate the Lord's table, we remember that God has given us a brother and a faithful brother at that by whom we can approach him. Unlike Joseph, God gave his son willingly and the son gave himself willingly that we may approach him in peace and find that food, that bread from heaven that gives life, and the drink that, that blood that gives life. This Joseph, this Jesus, has given us himself to appear before God with us and for us. With us and for us. This Joseph, this Jesus, has given us new clothes. His righteousness. That we may appear blameless before God. We are Potiphar's wife. And our only hope ever of vindication. Because the issue here is vindication. Our only hope of vindication is the righteous garments 
that Joseph left behind in our hands. That is your only hope of vindication. The righteous garments that Christ has given us. And so if God would ask you and say, have you not another brother? The answer is yes. His name is Jesus and he shall be well with you. Have you yet another brother? Yes, I have another brother. I have Jesus. And this morning, uh, Tawanda said to me, Daddy, you are my big brother. (laughs) Pray the Lord. Pray the Lord for Benjamin, for Judah, for Simeon, for Joseph. All those who are just playing out the drama of the gospel. And that's how we have to read the scriptures and see the gospel of grace. Let's, I'm not going to pray now. I'll pray when we have the table. So, Brother Robert, are we going to stay?